and uh, welcome to all of you who are joining us online as well as those of you who are meeting together here at Central Campus in person. Um, along with those meeting together at one of our other campuses in a physically distanced way, of course. Uh, when our boys were preteens, uh, one of our sons who was about six years old at the time, he followed his older brother up onto the roof of our garage uh, via our fence, uh, which was quite a feat in itself. However, once he got up onto the roof, he discovered that going down was a whole lot more difficult and scary than going up. And despite all the assurances from his brothers, they just couldn't coax him uh, to trust them for a safe way down. And so then after spending the better part of an hour trying to find a solution for uh, this issue, uh, they finally gave up. And as a last resort, they came to me for help. And I was the last resort because they knew I would not be pleased with this activity that they were engaged in. And so uh, after expressing, of course, my displeasure with what they were doing, I turned to our stranded son on the roof and I told him to sit on the edge of the roof, let his feet dangle down uh, the edge and then fall into my outstretched arms. And to my utter amazement, he did so without questioning me. It was a rare moment in my parenting career. And he looked into my eyes, he listened to my instructions, and then at my word, he pushed away from the roof and he landed safely in my arms. And as I held him for a moment, I, I just have to tell you uh, that his complete trust in me and uh, total obedience and simple obedience made me feel incredibly loved and special as a father. I mean, I would have been so hurt if the boys had gone all over the neighborhood looking for help for their younger brother before they came to me. Now, church, that little incident serves as a picture of the pleasure that God receives and, and the favor and the blessings that we receive in return when we believe and trust him with our lives. On the other hand, it also reminds us of how it grieves our Lord and the price that we pay when we refuse to believe God and go our own way. And we see this truth lived out in the scripture passage that we're looking at today. In our study uh, through the Gospel of Matthew, we, we come to a turning point in Jesus' ministry where a growing number of influential people uh, in his day become increasingly hostile toward him. In our scripture lesson today in Matthew 13, Jesus experiences this particularly upon returning to his hometown in Nazareth. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me now and join me in reading our scripture lesson today. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? 
And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all of these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word and Lord for its instructions in it for life. And Lord, we would ask that you would now, uh, you would now teach us from your word. Lord, uh, that we would soften our hearts and Lord, we would have the courage to respond to your call, whatever it might be uh, in our lives. For we pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Now, this was the second time that Jesus came home to Nazareth since he started his public ministry. And we read about the first time in Luke chapter 4, which I invite you to turn to if you'd like. After being baptized by John the Baptist and then being tempted uh, by the devil for 40 days in the Judean wilderness, Luke tells us that Jesus went to Nazareth and made his way to the synagogue. And once he was inside, he stood up to read. By the way, back then, people would stand to read the scriptures and they would sit to, to, to actually teach. And so he stood to read uh, uh, from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, the famous passage announcing the coming of the Messiah to save the people. And after reading it, he sat down while everyone waited eagerly to hear what he would have to say about this 700-year-old prophecy. And Jesus said, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, Jesus was saying, I am the fulfillment of this prophecy. I am the one that Isaiah is talking about here. I'm the Messiah. And even though initially... The people of Nazareth were proud of him and they spoke well of him. The more they thought about what he was really saying here about himself and also what he was saying um, to them about the state of their heart, they got increasingly agitated and said, who does this guy think he is? I mean, isn't this Joseph's son? And as Jesus continued to shine the light uh, onto their sin and their hypocrisy, they grew angry and they rose up and they took him to a steep cliff at the edge of town, fully intending to kill him. But Luke says he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Well, a little over a year later, Jesus did something few, if any of us, would do. And that is he went right back to his hometown Nazareth, went right back to the synagogue there where his life had been threatened. However, on his second visit, his reputation now precedes him even more so. The entire region has heard uh, about his, um, you know, the, the, his display of power and his wisdom. They have praised him for his amazing miracles in teaching. And so here he is in the synagogue at Nazareth. And as he teaches, once again, 
the people of Nazareth are amazed at his teaching and his wisdom. But despite their amazement, they refuse to believe him and trust him and that he is anything more than a man. Now, of all people, the people of Nazareth had the most reasons to believe Jesus and his claims. I mean, they saw him grow up and, and they knew his family well. They knew Joseph and Mary to be a godly couple. The fact that Jesus lived a sinless life. Now, they didn't know that he was living a sinless life, but he very much displayed a sinless life, which very much would have left the clear impression with all who knew him that this was an exceptional person, that he was kind and gracious. He was a person of integrity, a man uh, of his word, a man who did not lie but always told the truth. They would have known that Jesus received no formal religious training and therefore that his profound teaching and his wisdom could only have come from God. The fact that they saw Jesus as just an ordinary child and a young person growing up among them should have made them realize all the more that his, suddenly, his sudden ability to do miracles was something that only God could do through him. I mean, it was obvious to Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. I mean, he came to Jesus at night to protect his reputation as a committed Jewish leader. But once he sat down with Jesus, we read in John 3, 2, that he said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs that you're doing if God were not with him. I mean, it's pretty clear to Nicodemus where Jesus' miraculous power came from. And yet those who knew him best simply refused to believe and trust him. So why did they close their eyes to the clear evidence in front of them? Why did they not believe in Jesus? Well, the short answer is because they chose not to believe. That's the first truth that we see in this passage. Unbelief is a choice. I call it willful unbelief because just like believing is a decision of the will, so not believing is a decision of the will. Of course, some people do not believe because they don't know the truth, because uh, they lack the information that's needed to actually believe. But that wasn't the case here. The people of Nazareth did not reject Christ because of a lack of evidence. They rejected Christ in spite of the evidence. They refused to believe Jesus and submit to him and his teachings because they didn't want to change. They didn't want to align their life with the life and the way of Jesus. And so they made up a bunch of irrelevant excuses that we find here, like in verse 55. I mean, isn't this the carpenter's son? I mean, isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't these his brothers and sisters? And in other words, they were thinking thoughts like, how dare this ordinary young man from a very ordinary family that lived down the street from us in our little town of Nazareth claim to be the Messiah? I mean, he and his family are no better than us. I mean, who does he think he is? You think about 
When, when you think about this, what do these questions about Jesus' family and where he grew up have anything to do with the wisdom and the power he displayed? I mean, that would be like me stating that Sidney Crosby is one of the greatest hockey players the world has ever seen. And one of you saying, oh, but wait a minute. I mean, gee, you know, didn't Sidney grow, grow up down east in Halifax? I mean, how can this be? I mean, that's ridiculous. I mean, think about what does where he grew up have anything to do with how well he plays hockey? Well, people do the same thing today. When some people are introduced to Jesus and the compelling claims of Christ, they will often make comments or use questions as a smokescreen to avoid making a decision about Jesus. You know, I remember uh, having a spiritual conversation with someone over a period of several weeks uh, and, and really believed that, that he was sincerely seeking the truth that we were making some headway until one day he just suddenly uh, backpedaled. And he said, Pastor Henry, I'm sorry, but you know, I just can't bring myself to believe because so many Christians that I know are hypocrites. And I was so disappointed in his lame excuse. I just wanted to say, oh, please don't let that stop you. We always have room for one more. But my point, my point is, many of us have experienced firsthand the games that people play to avoid dealing with the truth. Some of you have a friend who agreed to come to church with you or to watch a service online with you, and when it was all over, instead of having a sincere, honest discussion about what you know, the pastor said, the person goes off into something totally irrelevant about the sermon not being relevant or it's too deep or the sermon was too light or it was boring or it was too long. Or they talk about how unfriendly everyone was at the alpha group you invited them to. Or they, they say they, they didn't like the attitude of the person who's, who uh, spoke to them about Christ. Or they let you know how offended they were by something the pastor said or a person in your small group said and they would therefore never return to your church or small group again. And yet if they carried that principle over to television, they would never watch TV again in their life. Now, of course, there are those who ask good questions about the validity of the Bible, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, how a loving God can allow suffering in the world because they are sincerely looking for answers. But like the people of Nazareth, many others aren't looking for reasons to believe. They're looking for reasons not to believe, reasons to be left alone, reasons just to keep on living the way they are. They don't want God messing with their lives. They want to be in control of their own life and do what they want to do. A number of years ago, I had a conversation with a young man who told me that he knew that the way, um, he knew the way that he needed to live. He knew the way that he needed to go. He, he grew up in a Christian home. He knew the answers. 
And he also knew God's expectations. He said he knew that if he continued the path that he was on, that there was a high probability that his life and his future could actually just blow up in his face and that he could face major regret and heartache. And even though I went into great length to warn him about this and to spell this out for him, he looked at me and he said, Pastor Henry, I know what I'm doing isn't right, but I don't want to change anything right now. I'll make a course correction sometime in the future, but not right now. Talk about presumption. You see, he understood the truth. And yet he ignored the truth because he had a personal agenda that wasn't aligned with the truth. And his personal agenda mattered more to him than the truth. Now, if your life is on a similar trajectory as this young man, then I hope and I pray that you realize that you are not only playing Russian roulette with where you will spend the next life, but you are missing out on the amazing faith adventure God intended for you to experience in this life. I challenge you to be honest with yourself and to stop playing games and instead to go hard after the truth and to investigate the compelling evidence of Jesus Christ because whether you avoid it or not, the Bible teaches that one day you and me and all of us are going to stand before a holy God and we're going to be held responsible for the decisions we made concerning Jesus Christ. And that's the first truth that we see in this passage. Unbelief is a choice. It's a decision in the same way that belief in God is a decision. The second truth we see here is that unbelief is costly. In the same way that there is blessing that comes with belief or faith in God, there is a cost that comes with unbelief. Here in verse 58... Matthew writes, and he, referring to Jesus, did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Unbelief can prevent us from receiving the miracles that God has for us. Now, make no mistake, God is all-powerful. He is totally sovereign, which means he can do anything he wants to. He is not limited by us uh, as humans in any way. God can do a miracle whether we have faith or not. In fact, when Jesus raised the dead, we know there was no faith exercised by the dead. When Jesus cast out demons, there most likely was no faith exercised by the demoniac. However, even though faith is not necessary for miracles, Jesus chose to do his miracles primarily in response to a person's faith in him. Even if that faith was very small, even if that person uh, was just open somewhat to him, like, the, like the, the, the person who said, I believe, but please help my unbelief. However, where there was hard hearted, willful unbelief, like in the life of the people of Nazareth, or where there was ungodly and uh, uh, ungodly uh, curiosity and a desire to be entertained like some of the religious leaders did, Jesus chose not 
to do miracles. You know, the greatest miracle, if you think about it, the greatest miracle uh, that Jesus came to perform was the miracle of making a way through his death and his resurrection for us to be forgiven and to become a friend of God. And that gift can only be received by a person who believes and trusts Jesus. I love the way that the Apostle John spells it out so clearly in John chapter 1, where he talks about Jesus, God the Son and the Messiah, coming into the world. In verse 10, he writes this. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, the people of Nazareth, but his own did not receive him. They rejected him. But now hear this. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is the greatest miracle and act of history. And let me be very clear, it is available to all who believe in him, all who receive the gift of grace by faith. And if you have not yet received his life-changing, eternity-changing gift of grace, I challenge you to humble yourself and to ask him right now in prayer to invade your life, to come into your life and embrace him as your Savior and Lord. So first of all, unbelief is costly because it can actually prevent us from receiving the miracles God has for us, the greatest of which, of course, is his grace. Secondly, unbelief is costly because it can prevent us from experiencing God's good purposes in our lives. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who what? The good of those who love him. In other words, the good of those who believe in him. The Bible says that God opposes the proud, those who believe in themselves, who, who basically uh, reject God. He opposes those people, but he gives grace to the humble, those who recognize they need him and reach out to him. You know, history and the scriptures are replete with examples of the power of belief in God. David believed God and was enabled to defeat his enemy, Goliath. Daniel believed God and the lions missed having him for supper. A Roman centurion believed God and his servant was healed. Two blind men believed God and received their sight and their salvation. The Philippian jailer believed God and received the joy of the Lord and eternal life. And those are just a very few examples of the power of believing God. On the other hand, unbelief can stop God from doing all that he would like to do. Adam and Eve failed to believe God and sin, selfishness, evil, suffering, and natural disasters entered the cosmos. 
Pharaoh refused to believe God and he lost his firstborn son and his entire army. Israel refused to believe God and wandered 40 years in the wilderness. Moses refused to believe God and it cost him the privilege of entering the promised land. The rich young ruler refused to believe God and forfeited eternal life with God in heaven. You see, there is a cost that comes with willful unbelief. So what does this mean for those of us who do not approach God with willful unbelief? In other words, what does this mean for us who believe and trust in Jesus? Well, the takeaway for us is the warning that our Lord gives us in Hebrews 3.12. This is what we read there. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Now, this warning is directed to us as believers. He's referring to brothers and sisters here. This is being directed to us as believers. And it's important that we understand that God's giving this warning out of a heart of love and concern for us. This is not a threat. God is for us. He has our best interests at heart. He longs for us to love and to trust him with all of our heart so that it will go well with us. And so he warns us through the writer of Hebrews here that we need to be alert to the fact that unbelief can creep into our hearts and it can cause us not to lose our salvation, but to lose out on all the blessings and the exciting faith-building adventures and opportunities that he has in store for us that will bring true satisfaction and fulfillment in our lives as we join him in making an eternal impact in the lives of others. So how can we avoid slipping into unbelief? We see it all the way through scriptures. We see it in the history of the people of Israel, but we also see it in many of the patriarchs, many of the other characters of scripture, where they believe God and then they slip into unbelief. How did we avoid that from happening in our lives? Well, let me give an illustration that hopefully will help us with this. This is the time of year, of course, when people make resolutions. And one of the resolutions, one of the most common resolutions people make is about becoming physically fit. And so let's say that I'm a certified professional fitness trainer. I know it's hard to imagine, but please work with me on this, okay? So let's say that you come to me and you ask me to lead you through a process that will result in you attaining a certain level of fitness. Now, if you're going to reach your goal, you're going to need to commit to three things. First of all, you're going to have to believe in me, your fitness coach. You're going to have to believe that I know what I'm doing, that I've been trained, that I've done the work necessary to to know what I'm doing. If you don't believe in me, you won't believe me, you won't follow me, and we may as well not even start the process. If you don't believe I can help you, 
then you need to find someone that you believe can help you. Secondly, you're going to have to be willing to change. You need to be willing to change what you eat, how much you eat, how much you sleep, how you exercise, and there's a number of other things you're going to have to change. If you're not willing to change, sorry, I can't help you. And thirdly, you're going to have to do what I ask you to do. Not some of what I do. No, everything I ask you to do and how I ask you to do it. In other words, I need you to trust me enough to surrender this part of your life to me. There will be days when you will be convinced I do not have your best interests at heart. There will be days you're convinced that I actually hate you, that I'm out to make your life miserable. There will be days you will not like me very much and you will say things about me that aren't very nice. There will be days when you will be convinced that I don't know what I'm doing and that you know a whole lot better and that you will be tempted to take matters into your own hands and do what you think is a better way to go. Well, here's the thing. If you want to take charge of your fitness training, then you go right ahead. But if you're coming to me to lead you in, the air, into, in this area of your life, then I need you to do three things. I need you to believe in me. I need you to be willing to change. And thirdly, I need you to obey me. I need you to, to do what I ask you to do. Now, church, I think we understand this principle. This is not rocket science. It's no different, folks, in our relationship with God. Why would it be? As Christians, if we want to experience God's very best for him, if we want to come to the end of our lives with no regret, then we need to, first of all, believe in him. We need to believe that he is the all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere-present God who not only created the universe, but he also created us, and he knows us better than we know ourselves. We need to believe that he is a good God who has our best interests at heart in all things, whether it seems like it or not right now. We need to believe that in all things, the good, the bad, the ugly, he is working them all together for our ultimate good and his ultimate glory. We need to believe that he loves and he cherishes us, that we are the apple of his eye and that we can trust him completely. We need to believe that he knows what he's doing and that he is the way to eternal life and that he is the truth and that he is the source of life itself. We need to embrace his values, his priorities, obey his commands and his precepts, pursue the mission that he's called us to, give our lives uh, to the eternal things of God rather than the lesser temporary things of life, and with the Spirit's help, seek to live like Jesus did, believing that in doing so, we'll not only experience true joy, peace, and satisfaction in this life, but we will have no regrets. And so the question is, how can we know that our faith and belief in God is slipping? I believe as Christians, we want to believe God. We want to believe in him. 
the things that I just quoted essentially are described from the scriptures about the character of God. We believe that. We want to believe that, but we are capable of slipping into unbelief. How do we know? What are the signs? Well, one sign that we're sliding into the ditch of unbelief is fear. If your focus on the problem is greater than on the problem solver, see it as a red flag. You're sliding toward the ditch of unbelief. Another sign we're sliding into the ditch of unbelief is anxiety. Instead of resting in God and his sovereignty, if we're anxious about the future, if, uh, if we're anxious about things that we can do nothing about and are convincing ourselves that the worst is going to happen to the point where we can't sleep and we can't eat and we can't rest, we're working ourselves to the bone, this is a red flag that we are sliding toward the ditch of unbelief. We have a correction to make here. A third sign is frustration and anger, where we find ourselves blaming and lashing out at others. A fourth sign is a grumbling spirit, where instead of giving thanks to God in all things, we find ourselves constantly griping and complaining about our situation and our circumstances. A fifth is the quality of our prayer life. If we're including God in our day and we're talking to him regularly throughout the day and and, and typically, we turn to him first to find answers and solutions. This demonstrates not only how much we believe in him, but also how much we trust him and need him. And boy, that pleases him. On the other hand, when prayer is typically an afterthought, something we tag on, not at the beginning, but at the end of a meeting or whatever the issue is, it's a red flag that we're actually trusting more in our own strength and our human solutions, and therefore we're sliding into the ditch of unbelief, and a correction is needed. A sixth is pride in our lives. And much, of course, could be said about pride because basically pride undergirds much of what we've talked about here. But I want to go back to something that Jesus said in our scripture lesson that can reveal a very subtle form of pride. In verse 57, Jesus said, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. The people of Nazareth and even the members of his own family allowed their familiarity with Jesus along with a subtle form of pride related to that. In other words, this belief that he's really no different or better than we are. It actually prevented them from not only believing him, but from hearing what God was saying through him. William Barclay has written, the hardest place for a preacher to preach is the church where he was a boy. Barclay goes on to write, in any church service, the congregation preaches more than half the sermon. Do you realize that? In other words, by what you bring here. He goes on to say, many a message has been killed stone dead, not because there was anything wrong with it, but because the minds of the hearers were so prejudiced against the messenger that it never had a chance. In other words, he's saying, 
when we have issues in our lives, like perhaps you and your spouse had a big argument before you came, or before you flipped up the computer screen to watch the service, <laughs> or issues with the person who's speaking, you know, oh, they're too young. Or they're, you know, they're just not qualified. You know, he's such a poor speaker. Or all the things that we throw out there. Or perhaps it's issues with the, uh, with the sermon itself. Because it's, it's not new and riveting. It's just, it's just a repeat of all the old stuff. I've heard this a hundred times before. Or because we don't want to face the implications of the sermon for our lives. Oh no, he's talking about money again. And we turn down our hearing aids. All these things will determine whether the Holy Spirit will be able to penetrate our hearts and bring change there and move us with the preacher's words. Dan Reed says, unbelief can hide itself in the sin of pride. And I love what he says next. It requires a particular kind of humility to hear and receive something life-changing from someone very familiar. It is the kind of humility the people of Nazareth did not have. All that to say, if you find yourself turning someone off, whether it's in this context, whether it's in a Bible study or whatever the case is, turning someone off because you don't think they're qualified to speak or because you don't think they're exceptional or maybe they're a little beneath you, or they're just very, very familiar. You know, I've heard him before. See it as a red flag that your pride may be preventing you from hearing something that God wants you to hear. And therefore, you're sliding toward a ditch of unbelief. So first of all, if we want to experience God's very best for us, we need to believe in him. Secondly, we need to be willing to change. The Bible calls this repentance, a willingness to change. When Jesus visited his hometown the first time in Luke 4, he looked them in the eye and he essentially said this, as I look at the center of your soul, I see spiritual poverty, I see spiritual bondage, I see spiritual blindness, and I see spiritual enslavement. And I've come to set you free of all of that, but it ain't going to happen if you aren't willing to repent, if you aren't willing to change. And of course, we know they weren't willing to do that because of their stubborn pride and hard-hearted unbelief. Well, you see, in the same way, when you and I read the scriptures or when we hear someone communicating the word in a Bible study or in a context like this in a worship service, the Spirit of God is going to reveal to us what he sees in us. And he's going to show us where our attitudes or our actions aren't aligned with God's word, where we need to change. And we're going to have to make a decision. Will we change and align our lives with, uh, with, uh, with God's best for us? Or will we give in to pride and unbelief and refuse to change? If we come to that place of saying, I need to change, if we come to that place of repentance, friends, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
That is why Jesus came. And then finally, if we want God's best for us, we're not only going to need to believe in Christ first of all, and be will- secondly, and be willing to change, but thirdly, we're going to be- need to be willing to obey him and do what he says. Believing is not just saying, I accept the facts. Like, you know, I believe that Jesus is God. It's a incredibly powerful truth. But believing in the scriptures has a different concept. Believing in the scriptures is giving your life over into the hands of the one you say you believe in. Jesus demands our total submission. Not just believing in him, but uh, as a mental concept, but believing him. Trusting him and following him as your Lord and as your king. It means when we read and study the Bible or we hear the scriptures taught in a worship service like this and we hear God say, forgive as I have forgiven you. When we hear God say, love, cherish, and respect your spouse. When we hear God say, be kind, compassionate, gracious, gentle, patient with one another. When we hear God say, be generous. When we hear God say, do not conform to the pattern of this world. When we hear God say, honor one another above yourselves. When we hear God say, live in harmony with one another. When we hear God say, do not be proud. When we hear God say, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with one another. When we hear God say these things to us, if we want his very best in our lives, if we want no regrets when we come to the end of this life, then we don't rationalize them away. But we do what he calls us to do. You know, in Second Chronicles, we read about the great-grandson of King Solomon, a king named Asa. The Bible says Asa started out his reign totally devoted to God. Whenever he had a decision to make, whenever he had an issue that needed to be addressed, the very first thing he did is he turned to the Lord. But somewhere along the way, unbelief began to creep into his thinking. And instead of going to God first, he began to seek human advice and human solutions first. And you see, this is God's concern for us as believers. It was his concern then, and it is his concern now. Because he knows when unbelief in our heart begins to, uh, when our heart begins to slide toward unbelief, we're going to pay a dear price. And we're going to miss his very best for us and his purpose for our lives. And so God sent a prophet to Asa to remind him of this truth that we have all, that we're all familiar with. And we, it's, we find it in 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him that's what he's looking for friends our God is a good God he wants to bless us he wants to support us that's what it says he wants to strengthen and empower us and to experience his very best 
but it will require us to have a certain kind of heart, a heart that is fully committed to him. Now, of course, God does not expect us to live a life of perfect obedience because he knows that we're incapable of living the perfect life. Only Jesus was able to do that. And it's only by his grace that we're made perfect in God's eyes through faith in his finished work on the cross. As you've heard me say many times before, God isn't looking so much for the perfection of our life. He's looking at the direction of our heart. A heart that does three things. A heart that believes in him. A heart that's willing to change. And a heart that is obedient to his call to be who he wants us to be and to do what he wants us to do. May it be so. May it be so. To the glory of God and for the sake of a world that needs the Jesus that we know and love. Would you just bow your heads for a moment? And let's just respond to the questions that we have become accustomed to at this point in the message. Lord, what are you saying to me? And Lord, what do you want me to do about it? And then after a moment, we're going to join together in responding by celebrating the goodness of our God.